We've been looking at the Beatitudes, which are found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The first Beatitude, as we saw, is Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I would argue that the purpose of every command that we find in the Sermon on the Mount is to drive us back to this very first Beatitude. It has been argued that just as the first commandment is sort of the foundation for the other nine commandments of the Ten Commandments, so this first beatitude is the foundation. I find it interesting, though. I think if you were to ask people what is the first commandment, they probably wouldn't know. They know the others, but they don't know the first. And the first is, you shall have no other gods beside me. That is the foundation. And here it is the foundation It is the goal. It is that which gives us the ability to follow or to obey in what follows. So consider what, just in chapter 5, what we find in Matthew. Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Or this, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if we take these seriously, if we really believe these, I think we will, or we at least should feel very poor in spirit, because frankly, this is something I'm not capable of doing on my own. One author has paraphrased the first beatitude as, blessed are those who feel their real personal failure. See, those who feel self-sufficient, those who do not feel poor, have no need of God's grace or his favor. Their hands are full of what they imagine is all that they need. There is no room for God. There is no room for God's blessing. Some might imagine that it's sort of like icing on the cake that you're holding in your hand, but no. Blessed are those who have empty hands, those who are poor. They can receive God's grace, and they don't receive it once for all. It is moment by moment that we are to receive the grace of God. We who have been God's people for a while, perhaps we have reached a point where we think, well, I've received God's grace. I'm I'm fine. Um, And we've lost sight of the fact that moment by moment, apart from the grace of God, we are poor and we are to look to him. One author put it this way, to such and only to such the kingdom of God is given. For God's rule, which brings salvation as a gift as absolutely free as it is utterly undeserved, it is to be received with the dependent humility of a little child. The kingdom of heaven is not given to the rich. It is given to the poor. It's not given to the mighty. It is given to the feeble. The second beatitude we looked at last week. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we saw last week, having established the first beatitude, Jesus now builds on it. So, it is one thing to say, yes, I am spiritually poor. Um, I acknowledge that I am in need of God's grace. It is another thing to grieve and mourn over your state. See, Jesus isn't talking about being sad. He isn't talking about being depressed over something, over anything. It's based on the first beatitude in which we recognize our poverty. And because we see that, we are to mourn our own sinfulness, our own spiritual poverty. It is one thing to confess, I am poor. It is another to mourn and be remorseful over your poverty. John the Baptist and then Jesus after him preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
And what is expected is not jubilation that the kingdom is near, but tears because of the call to repentance. We are to mourn, as we saw last week, not mope. We are to mourn, not despair. A person who despairs sees no hope, thinking God cannot forgive me this particular sin, or I cannot believe that I committed this particular sin. Or worse, and probably the most damaging, I cannot forgive myself for having committed this particular sin. This is not mourning. This is a a false imitation of mourning. It is, in fact, a refusal to mourn. A person who mourns says, yes, I did commit that sin, and it was wrong. And we should weep and mourn over what we have done. We saw the two examples, the contrasting examples of Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied him. Judas committed suicide. Peter wept bitterly. He wept because he mourned over his sin. We also saw that we are to mourn our sins, not the possible consequences of our sins. We saw in the case of Cain. Cain kills his brother And yet when he cries out to God, it isn't, look at what a terrible thing I've done. I've killed my sibling. It is, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So how am I to mourn over sin? How am I I somehow to work up some emotional response to my sin? No, I think we should see that sin is an act of hostility against God. And not as an enemy, but as a traitor. It's an act of treason. We are to see it as the highest ingratitude. God has been gracious to us, and in turn we slap him in the face by committing sin. And we should see sin as that which separates us from God. The problem is sometimes our hearts are so callous and so dull that we may not even recognize the distance between God and ourselves. The blessing for those who are mourn that mourn is that they will be comforted. And I said very little about it last Sunday. Um... In part because if you don't mourn, why do you want to be comforted? Uh, I think people like the second part of each of the Beatitudes. They're not crazy about the first part. But stop and think a minute. If we mourn over our own sinfulness, what comfort can God give us? The comfort he gives us is free forgiveness. He forgives our sins. Simeon, as I mentioned last week, was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort, and he saw it in the person of the infant Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Today we come to the third beatitude, which is found in verse number five. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I mentioned when I began this series that when Jesus starts with the word blessed, I I could just picture someone poking his buddy and saying, this is going to be good. Blessed. This, this is going to be a great sermon. And then Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And people are like, what? That's not what I was expecting. And blessed are those who mourn. Not that either. But blessed are the meek. This is something they've heard before many times. This is something rooted in the Old Testament. In Psalm 37, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek shall inherit the land and enjoy great peace. I think any difficulty we have with David and with Jesus centuries later is that we're not sure what the word meek means. And I would suggest that rather than running to a dictionary to find out what it means, we should see what Jesus has said thus far. 
He is described as blessed those who, in fact, have acknowledged their poverty, those who have mourned over their sins. Such people have had God's grace or will have God's grace bestowed on them. But now he adds a third, those who are meek. What does he mean? The word he uses could mean gentle, it could mean humble, it could mean considerate. But in which sense is Jesus using this word? I believe that what Jesus is talking about is our attitude toward others, which is determined by a true view of ourselves, a true estimate of ourselves. That is, because I acknowledge my own poverty and my inability to sustain myself, and I mourn over my sins, therefore I act in gentleness and humility and meekness toward others. You see, it's one thing, it's comparatively easy to be honest with myself before God, to acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I should mourn over my sins. It's something else when somebody else says this about us. One author put it this way. I myself am quite happy to recite the general confession in church and call myself a miserable sinner. A sinner. But let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner and I want to punch him in the nose. In other words, I am not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I have just acknowledged before God that I am. There is a basic hypocrisy here. There is always... There's always this hypocrisy when meekness is absent. You see, it is one thing to say, I am a sinner. It's another to allow someone to say it to you and say, you are absolutely right. Another author put it this way, a pastor. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. In other words, I know who I am. So I can't somehow lift myself up. I should in fact be meek and humble and gentle and acknowledge who I am even before others. A wonderful example of this is found in Numbers chapter 12. And if you would turn there, Numbers chapter 12. It's a story of siblings. You have the older brother, Aaron, the older sister, Miriam, and then the younger brother, Moses. But Moses is the one that God has called to be in charge of Israel. Um, Read this uh, in sections. The first three verses. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. This is the setting. The older sister and the older brother begin to question the younger brother's judgment. Primarily because they don't like his wife. He's married an Ethiopian woman. And so they say, listen, are you the only one that God has spoken to? Don't think you're so high and mighty that you can marry whoever you want without our permission or our blessing. 
And then we are told, and it's parenthetical in verse number three, that Moses was a very humble, some translations, the ESV and King James, have meek, that he was a very meek man, more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. We're told two things. The Lord heard this, and Moses did not respond. He was a meek person. He didn't answer them. Instead, God speaks to them. Look at verse number four. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And both of them stepped forward. He said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. When with him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles, he sees the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This could be a sermon in itself. This is amazing that God says, listen, to the prophets I speak somewhat indirectly, dreams, visions, riddles. No, with Moses it's face to face. And why weren't you afraid to challenge him? So look at verse number 9. The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. When the cloud lifted up from the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half-eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days. The people did not move on until she was brought back. God struck Miriam with leprosy. Aaron confessed that they had sinned foolishly as opposed to the other kind of sin. And Moses prayed that God would heal her. In this whole exchange, Moses does not answer them. He doesn't say, listen, I'm in charge. God chose me, not you. When the Lord speaks to Miriam and Aaron, Moses doesn't say, see there? And when Miriam is struck with leprosy, he cries out to God for her. He doesn't say, that'll teach you. How dare you challenge my authority? What we find in Moses is an attitude toward others that reflects a true view of himself. He knew who he was, that he was one who was poor in spirit, one who mourned over his sin. The, the, the contrast to meekness is to be hasty in spirit, quick to anger. The teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. See, a fool does not acknowledge his poverty. A fool does not mourn over his sin. A fool, in fact, responds quickly without thinking. The meek person does not respond hastily, particularly when his or her character is questioned. Because we do find, in fact, with Moses that there is a time when he acts hastily, and because of that, he is not allowed to go into the promised land. But when he himself is challenged, he does not respond quickly. The opposite of meekness is to respond with malice, with hatred. 
or to think in terms of revenge. When someone questions your integrity, when somebody gossips about you, when someone spreads lies about you. Remember what I, I read to you earlier from a pastor, the man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. You might ask, but Damon, what if people lie about me? What if they lie about me? The fact is, the lies that people tell about you would pale in comparison to the sin in your life. You're thinking about your reputation, but let's talk about your state before God. What they would say about us pales in comparison to the reality of who we truly are in need of God's grace. Do you remember the story in Tom Sawyer when uh, Aunt Polly is going to spank him? And he says, I haven't done anything. And her response is, you know, you might be innocent this time, but I'm sure there's something in the past that, that I didn't catch you for, and so I'll give it to you this time. The opposite of meekness is answering evil for evil. This will come up later in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you would, turn to Second Samuel chapter 16. Second Samuel chapter 16. The story here is that Paul's, uh, sorry, David's son has, uh, has pulled a coup d'etat. He has, in fact, taken over his father's throne. Uh, Absalom has caused David to flee for his life. And as he is fleeing for his life, one of his enemies, if you wish, one of the children of Israel, comes up and curses him. In 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse number 5, As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family, Saul was the first king, came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops in the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What do, I have, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? For if he is cursing because God, the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? Then David, then David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son of whom, who is of my own flesh is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. May it, it may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road, while Shemai went, alongside, uh, went along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. David was a meek person. He allowed this man to curse him and pelt him. We are to be meek. Consider what Peter says, To this you were called 
This is the example we are to follow. Because Jesus, or Jesus Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him so he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus calls us to be meek. Blessed are the meek. This is the mark of a Christian. As Peter will say it is the mark of a gentle and quiet spirit. We've seen this several times in the past. In the passage in Colossians, we are told to clothe ourselves with all these various virtues, with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. It is the mark of the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, if you know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness and self-control. It is, in fact, to mark our behavior. We who are God's people are to be meek. In Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of meekness. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Listen, if someone is caught in a sin, you're like, I'm a sinner too. I mourn over my sins. So to help this person is not to say, I'm without sin. Here, let me help you. It is in a spirit of meekness that you acknowledge your poverty. He tells Timothy, those who are in the ministry, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must in meekness instruct. Again, think of Moses, who could have said, that'll teach you. No, in meekness we are to instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And this is, in fact, what happened with Aaron and Miriam. And then one more passage. This is to mark our behavior in First Peter. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who, who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with meekness and respect. Above all this, this is the mark of those who went before us. We've seen Moses, we've seen David. Consider the Apostle Paul. I think that most of us at different, at different times have had a really distorted view of Paul. That he comes across in his writings as bombastic and so we think of this man who's just full of fire and just outgoing, extroverted. But we read in First in Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why speak with fear and trembling? Because Paul recognized his poverty of spirit. And he realized that apart from the Spirit of God, he could do whatever he wanted and it would not have the effect that it should. 
In fact, one of the things that comes up in the second letter to the Corinthians is that people say that in his letters, and that's what we have, we've never seen him in person, in his letters, he really comes across as bombastic. But in fact, in person, he was someone marked by fear and trembling. And then, of course, there is the Lord Jesus. This is the mark of Jesus. But what is remarkable about, about this with Jesus is that Jesus had no sin. So he was not poor in spirit. He did not have to mourn after his sins. He had no sins. And yet he was meek. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then there is the passage from Isaiah. This, is, this was to fulfill what was written or spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Okay, if we stop right there, we're thinking, okay, this guy is going to be dynamite. This guy is going to proclaim justice. He's going to straighten everything out. Next verse, he will not quarrel or cry out No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. You know, a reed that's already on the verge of breaking, he's not going to damage it. Somehow we imagine that we need to be dynamic and Jesus is seen as meek. When he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, See or say or see your king comes to you meek and riding on a donkey. And Jesus calls us to follow his example. But we cannot follow his example if we are not meek. And we cannot be meek if we have not acknowledged, if we do not recognize that our hands are really empty. What we imagine we have in our hands is an illusion. We can do nothing, we can do nothing to save ourselves. And acknowledging our poverty, we are to mourn over our sins. We cannot be meek until we have done so. At this point, you might be saying, okay, let's get to the second part of the verse. What about the blessing? What about the blessing? For they will inherit the earth. A part of me wants to say to you, and indeed I will say to you, our concern should be the first part. Okay? Uh, Of this and every beatitude, this should be our concern. Don't worry about the second part. God keeps his promises. We will, the Lord willing, come back to this in the weeks to come. But I will ask you here at the end, if you were entering into a particular project and you wanted to choose those who would work with you, they would help you to achieve a successful result, who would you choose? Would you choose the self-confident, the dynamic, the assertive? Or do you want someone who is poor in spirit? Someone who mourns over the sin? Someone who is meek? Yet Jesus calls us in proclaiming the good news. Today this message is fulfilled in your hearing. He calls us to acknowledge our poverty and to be meek. And he tells us, blessed are the meek. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we are reminded of what we read in Isaiah, that your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. We keep using certain words, but we use them in a very different way than what you intend. We don't look for the meek when we want to be successful. We don't look for people who are dependent upon others. We want the independent, the self-sufficient, the outgoing. And yet when Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom, this is what he tells us. May we, by your grace, by your spirit, embrace these truths and take them to heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. May your spirit do his work in our hearts. May he change our thinking. May we come to see that in many ways we think much more like the world than we do as you would have us think. We imagine that our hands are full. Perhaps our hearts are full. Our minds are full. And in fact, we are empty apart from you. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We pray for Rosa as she travels, that you would watch over her. For Gia, that you would touch her and raise her up. For each of us, as we come into summer with the heat, that you would protect us and keep us safe. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.